Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, this morning we are going to try to do something I hope will be very helpful to you. Many of us have been watching what is taking place in the Middle East over the last several months, and uh, I would like to try to zero in, if I could, and try to give some biblical thoughts on to where are we at, what is going to happen. Thank you very much, Nathan. I appreciate that. This doesn't mean that it's going to be a long, long sermon. I just... (laughs) I once had a prof in, in seminary that taught sitting down, and, and we were coming to the end of the class. It was a Greek class, and uh, he had some great thoughts, but he was especially tired, and he was leaning like this as he was teaching, and all of a sudden, there were no words coming out of his mouth. <laughs> we as students looked at each other, should we cut out now? <laughs> I'm hoping that's not going to happen here this morning. And uh, so I hope this will be of interest to you. We actually are going to look at the book of Zechariah. And it's a powerful, powerful book that was written about 500 years before the time of Christ's first coming. And uh, there's so much to glean from these Old Testament prophets, and we won't have a chance to look at it verse by verse, and part of it will sort of be a survey, but I think you'll enjoy as you go through and listen to the thoughts that this man shares being directed by the Spirit of God. But if you do have your Bibles, you can open them up to Zechariah chapter 12. We'll put up a number of the verses that we're going to look at. But as we look at this, I just wanted to, first of all, try to, to bring in some thoughts and that deal with the Jewish people as a whole, because a lot of people say, well, are we rooting for Israel? Are, what, how should we respond to some of the things that are going on? What does the future look like? And so we're going to try to tackle that. But one verse I just wanted to bring out to us as we reflect, notice what The Apostle John writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Simply trying to bring out that Jewish people would claim at the time of Christ that they were very close to God, but they wouldn't accept Jesus as the Son And I would say that is a very incorrect statement because Jesus said at that time, he that hates me hates my father also. In other words, you can't, there is such a close relationship between the father and the son. You can't have one without the other. In fact, Jesus went on to say, these who kill you, talking about his followers, and they were going to be persecuted, they are going to think that they're doing God a service but they have not known the Father, neither have they known me. Can you imagine going up to a Jew at the time of Christ and saying to them, you know what, you really don't know God? I mean, they would, are you kidding me? But that's actually, that actually was was true. And 
I simply want to say at this point, the nation of Israel as a whole is in the state of unbelief. You have to understand that. They are not friends of the gospel. No, they're not. In fact, when you read Romans chapter 11, and I can't go through that chapter right now, but it gives the picture of God doing a work and comparing it to an olive tree. And the beginning of that olive tree had Jewish roots. And God did a great work, but it was just a remnant of Israel that was saved. But then it goes on to say, because of the unbelief of Israel, that some of the natural branches were cut off and he grafted in wild branches. That represents Gentiles. That represents you and me were grafted into this plant. But then Paul writes to us and said, don't become haughty in your spirit because God again can graft in those natural branches which represents the Jewish people. And God is gonna do that, folks. In fact, it says in that passage, it says concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And for the most part, the Jews are enemies to the gospel. They're enemies to what you and I would like to see done in the world. It says that. But then it goes on to say, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Enemies... And at the same time, because of what God is going to do, they're called beloved. So I want you to get the balance here of what is going on with Israel. They are at a state of unbelief. Now, just sort of a, um, an overview as you look at the book. I just noticed something as I studied, and it, it's interesting, because we're going to go over Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. In chapter 12, we're going to see the Messiah pierced. We already looked at one of those passages. In Psalm 22, the Messiah is pierced. In chapter 13 of Zechariah, you actually have the Messiah presented as a shepherd, Psalm 23, Jesus is portrayed as a shepherd. In Zechariah chapter 14, you are going to see the Messiah presented as a king. In Psalm 24, you you see Jesus, the king, coming. So it's interesting to me, as I was studying and reflecting, that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 actually reflect what we're going to look at here this morning. Now, as we look at Zechariah chapter 1, I want you to see the overview, and I want you to pay attention to these words as we go through. Notice what it says. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. That's interesting, isn't it? And then it goes on to say, For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Jerusalem still does have a special place 
with God. We need to understand that, and that's what this, this author is trying to say. And notice the continued view of this as, as you look at it. Notice in chapter 2, again, this is the overview of the whole book. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, Zion is simply another name for Jerusalem. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Understand there's a plan here in God's plan what is going to take place. And as you think of it, a lot of times in the church history, they have tried to spiritualize many of the promises that were given to Israel and to Jerusalem, yet they are meant to be taken literally. And you said, well, how do you know that? You know, if you just think through the Old Testament and a number of the promises that are given. For instance, a couple of weeks, we studied the town of Bethlehem. And the prophet Micah, 700 years before the time of Christ, said, out of you, Bethlehem, shall come the ruler. Was Jesus born literally in Bethlehem? And you would say, yes, he was. When you start to look at some of the other prophecies, even in the book of Zechariah, it says that the king will come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Did that literally happen? Yes. And then, as, as you look at how Jesus was betrayed, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, it says the betrayal will be 30 pieces of silver, and they'll throw it into the temple, and it'll be used to buy a potter's field. Did that literally happen? Yes. And you look at, and I handed, I have a sheet if you want to look at it. There's some 36 prophecies that talk about Christ, and they talk about What's going to happen? It talks about he's going to die between criminals. He's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. That his bones won't be broken. All of this, did that happen literally? Yes. So when we come to prophecies like this about Jerusalem and Judah, we do take them literally. You are to interpret the scriptures. And one of the rules that we learned as we studied was this. When you read a passage, how did the original people who read that prophecy, how did they understand that prophecy? In this case, as Zechariah was writing to Jewish people, did they take the city of Jerusalem literally? Yes, they did. I know there's some figurative speech, I understand that, but for the most part, you have to take these prophecies that they're, and what's being said here is that at the right time, Jerusalem will be the center and all the nations will flow to it. 
That's what's being said here. Notice, because <laughs> you look at it, it says, notice verse 13. Be silent, God says, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is probably a, a what God is saying is, shut up. I'm about to do something here, and no one will stay my hand. He is, folks. He is. It's almost like you're at a sports event, and the one that is controlling the event starts to raise up to stand up, and I, as a spectator, I, too, start to raise up. What is he going to do? That's what the book of Zechariah is about. He's sharing with us what he's going to do. And you know, as you, as you look at it, there's, there's Israel. Adam has showed the map, and we understand what Israel is. But you know, when you take a look at it, can you see Israel on that map? Do you see that little speck in the very center? It's dark. I hope you can see it. Otherwise, maybe you need to have your eyes checked, but maybe not. <laughs> Do you see how little Israel is on that part of the map? Can you imagine a secular historian reading these ancient prophets who are speaking about Jerusalem and Israel and saying, are you kidding me? Are you telling me that all of history is going to flow through this little nation no, that can't be true. How in the world can that be true? But I'm going to tell you it is true. It is going to flow through this tiny nation. And God starts to reveal some of the things that are going to take place. So with that in mind, we want to look at, at least get an overview of Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. He said, well, why did you select that passage of Scripture? One of the reasons I did is because if you look at this passage closely, you will see a little phrase that happens in this portion of the book on that day. Now, that phrase, as, as you look at it, in, uh, um, it is used four times in, in the book prior to this passage, but in, this, in these verses, it's used 15 times. And what is God trying to say? In that last day, when I bring these things to a conclusion, this phrase is found over and over and over again in, three, in these three chapters. What it says to me is these are the future things that are going to happen to the nation of Israel and to bring these things to a close. So I'm going to just say, read these chapters, study these chapters, learn these chapters. There's something else as, as we look at, at this whole idea, and that is the place of Jerusalem and Judah. And notice in these passages, here again, what you find here is, are all the times that either Jerusalem or Judah is at the very center of what's going to happen. Quite a few times, aren't they? And I just want to say to you, it's not just in this book. 
If you read the book of Revelation, guess what city you bump into? If you read the book of Joel, what city do you bump into? If you read the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you go through all of them and they all come back to this city, to this country. They all come back here. It's not just Zechariah. But this city and this land is going to be at the very center of what God is going to do. So why are all the people that study the Bible excited about the day in which we live? Because it's starting to happen, isn't it? Not just now. It's happened even before in many, many occasions. Now as we start to look in Zechariah chapter 12, for Israel, for Jerusalem, it's going to be a very difficult start as you come into this latter day when God begins to bring these things to pass. Notice what it says. As you look at it, behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering, notice, to all the surrounding nations. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. You know, you watch the news and you watch the siege that's taking place on, on, on Hamas over on that side of Israel, and you start to see the destruction that is taking place. I'm not trying to justify or say all the things. I understand why it's all taking place. But what I want to say to you, that siege is going to come against Jerusalem and Israel in the end times. You understand that? They are going to face some very difficult times. According to this passage, there will be a siege against Jerusalem. In fact, it says it, it is a, a cup of trembling or a siege, it says, a cup of staggering. The next verse, which I failed to put up there, says, and it will happen in that day. There you go again. In that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples, all who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it and you know you start to think in other words they're going to come against jerusalem and all of a sudden everybody that deals with jerusalem is going to get damaged in their case against jerusalem is that hard to believe in the day in which we live? As Jerusalem and Israel move against Hamas, they move against the West Bank, they say this is going to go on for months. Can you see the attitude of the nations coming against this small country? We're seeing some of these things happen right before our eyes. And I'm not saying the end is right now. What I am saying is God uses current events to create exactly what he talked about in his word. It is going to happen. And it is happening. How long it takes, we're not sure. But it's here. And as, as you go through the difficult start, notice what it says. As you go through, and I can't go through verse by verse, but as you look at it, you start to see it, the, the difficulty at the beginning when this thing starts to happen. It says, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be cut off and perish. 
So what is that supposed to mean? It sounds like two-thirds of them will die as this begins. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. But notice at the end what it says. They shall call upon my name and I will answer them. Notice, it looks like at the end of this time, however long it is, there will be a people that turns to God. And then it says, and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Then it says in Zechariah 14, you have to read all three chapters putting putting together verses that talk about similar things. In chapter 14, notice, and I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people shall be cut off from that day. That's in Jerusalem. The other part talked about the land. There will be tremendous difficulties in the nation of Jerusalem in these last days, according to the book of Zechariah. we got to keep moving because what happens is in that time, there becomes a surprise victory. Can you imagine all the power of these nations working against that little sliver of a country and you say, they don't have a chance And they don't, humanly speaking, but then something happens. A surprise victory. This is what takes place. How exactly this happens, I don't know, but it says, on that day, notice again, you run into that, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, and the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts. In other words, Jerusalem looks like it'll take the lead. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flame torch among the sheaves. And they will devour to the right and to the left and the surrounding peoples while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah. First, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God. I don't know how God is going to give the victory, but all of a sudden in all of the persecution, all of a sudden a victory starts to take place throughout Jerusalem, throughout Israel, and God is turning the tables Listen, you can have the whole world against God. He just has to lift a little finger and he can undo everything just that quick. And there's examples of that as you go through scripture. This is not hard for God. But as that victory takes place, this is what we started to look at in the communion service. This is what's going to take place And I will pour out on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that they look upon me on whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for me as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over the firstborn. There's a really interesting word here that you need, and it's the word pierced. It's dakar in the Hebrew. And it means to pierce, to literally run through is the normal way that it's used. And even in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 3, it's used of running someone through and killing them. And notice, this is such a powerful passage because if you look at it closely, notice, they shall look upon me. The me clearly is Jehovah God. If you read the whole passage, God is speaking throughout the whole passage. But this is so confusing to the Jewish mind, it should be confusing to us in one sense. Notice, they shall look upon me on whom they have pierced, whom they have killed. And the Jewish mind says, that can't be God. You can't kill God. They're right, aren't they? But God was pierced on that day, wasn't he? It should amaze us as much as the Jewish people. He was pierced. He's the one. The one they have resisted for centuries is now here. He's the one that's giving them the great victory right here. And now they look upon him. And that's why I said they had to be thinking through, how did we get this so wrong? And you notice as you go through the whole passage, it even brings out that it says they weep over the only child. They weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over the firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plan of Megiddo. That's when Josiah the king died centuries before. This will be greater. In fact, as you go through it, you'll see as you read, every person will weep bitterly by themselves. That's what the passage says. You read it for yourself. I think when the apostle Paul was saved and then he was placed in a room for three days, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, I think Paul was doing the same thing. How did I get this so wrong? And as I said before, Salvation comes to us when we begin to realize, how did we get this so wrong? I thought going to church would usher me into the kingdom or doing good works or whatever it is, but we were wrong. That stuff doesn't get you any closer to the kingdom of God than anything else. Only the new birth a conversion to Christ, a repentance. And that's what God, in fact, when Jesus came the first time, he did all sorts of miracles. And, and John the Baptist and Jesus both preached. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven. He did the miracles. And then in Matthew chapter, well, John saw the Old Testament prophets. He knew when this time came, that he would be like a refiner's fire, like laundry soap. 
and that they would purify and refine, but it never happened because the people of Israel, according to Matthew chapter 11, in Jesus' words, he began, he began to upbraid the cities because they would not repent. It's going to happen here, folks, in a greater way than they ever realized. And they will weep bitterly. They will repent. And the king is going to enter Jerusalem. Are we there with our attitude and our reception? Have you repented that way and come to Christ? I pray that you have, but that's the key to all of this. There's so much as, as you go through, and as they repent, notice there's a great fountain of cleansing. The very next, as you look at the next verse, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And it'll happen, won't it? As we sense the heaviness of our sins and move towards Christ knowing that he paid the whole price, we find the cleansing. That's what salvation is all about and you see it taking place in the land of Israel. This is going to happen. Isn't it going to be a joy to watch that? That's what's going to happen in the land of Israel. What a great cleansing will take place in fact, it's going to create a new land. And I know we can't go, ever, go over everything, but as, as you look at it, there's going to be a new land. In fact, as you look at it, there will be no more, no more drought in Jerusalem on that day. Notice again, on that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer and winter. That's not happened in Israel. The topography is going to totally change when he lands and he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, which we bypassed, but that's found in chapter 14. They are going to be totally secure. In that day, it shall be inhabited, and there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction in Jerusalem. I wish they probably, oh, if we could have that today, but it is coming. And you'll find it in the book of Joel. You'll find it in a number of books. There will be a Jerusalem that won't face all the things that they're facing now. The wealth of the nations shall flow to it. It says even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. Worship shall be centered there. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts and keep the feast of booths. The entire land is going to change. That is Zechariah's writing about what's going to take place in that day. Prophecy is simply God recording history beforehand. It's here for us to study, to read. This isn't the only passage in the Old Testament should be studied. There should be many of them that are looked at. 
But God is going to get the victory in the end. And Jesus is going to be king out of the city of Jerusalem that's going to rule the whole land. That is going to happen. Praise God. It's coming. Now, as you listen to all of this, just several things. On your gold card, if you, if you have a gold card electronically or before you, there's several things that I've listed there for you to consider as you think of this teaching. One of them really deals with just Read this. Would you consider just reading Zechariah chapter 12 through 14? I would encourage you to read the whole book. Would you just read it? Secondly, as you think of the deep repentance that this people is going to go through, where are you? Where am I in that do we sense the seriousness of our sins what jesus have have you ever gotten alone with god and repented similar to the people that you see in this passage i pray that you might even make a decision i need to get alone with god to make sure that has happened in my life the third thing that i have listed there People, I don't know how long it's going to be before Jesus comes, but I see these things forming. It could form quickly, or it may take a little while. But we should be ready, shouldn't we? In fact, the early church was so vibrant because they thought Jesus was coming any day. We should have a vibrancy like that. What are the things that you might do in this coming year as you consider the prophecies that you just looked at? Should it change the way we live? The New Testament says if we have this hope in ourselves, it purifies us. It causes us to live differently. It causes us to do things for the kingdom of God's sake instead of ourselves. This prophet that was writing, he was rebuking the people of his day. If you read Haggai and Zechariah, because the people were so busy adorning their houses, they left the house of God unattended. Is there an application for us today? I think there should be. Consider those things. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for the book of Zechariah and the clear teaching that it gives to us about the coming days. We rejoice that someday soon our Savior is going to come. The one that was pierced, he's going to come giving great victories to his people. We rejoice in that. And Father, may we do the work that you want us to do now, today, even before that day arrives. Father, help us to be ready as Jesus often often taught in a day that you think not, the Lord comes. May we be ready for that day and may we look forward to that day. God, bless our church. Help us to be active for you 
in all that we can do. In Jesus' name.